Man, just some incredible stories during worship. I know I was just um, really blessed to be invited into those. So thank you, JT and Sandy. Thank you, Casey. Um, just incredible to see what kind of God we serve and that he is doing things um, in our lives and in our midst. So you guys are joining us. Um, we're closing up our summer teaching series on Jesus. And so I know nobody's like, oh, man, we want a new series. It's like, no, it's on Jesus, okay? We can't have any no more new series. The only series that this church has is on Jesus. So that's what we're going to preach week in and week out. But our, our particular series is on the audacious acts of Jesus. And all summer long, we've been kind of drilling into this idea that knowing should define our doing, and knowing should define our speech and our words. And then there's this series, knowing, again, defines our doing, informs our doing. And so these audacious acts that Jesus has, he knows something. And every act that we've looked at, he's been inviting us in to explore what he knows. In fact, the entirety of the gospel is God inviting us in to what he knows. So two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus waking up from a nap, being a little cranky, and telling the wind and the waves to stop. He probably wasn't cranky that he was woken up from a nap. As Frank shared, he was cranky that his disciples didn't understand his authority and power and that he could save them from anything. Last week, we looked at Jesus forgiving the sins of a man without him even having to confess those. Jesus saw his faith, and he healed him and forgave his sins. Guys, we don't have to make ourselves look good before God. We just have to come to him in faith, and he forgives our sins. So this week, we're going to look at another audacious act. We're going to look at Jesus clearing the temple or cleansing the temple. And some of you might be somewhat familiar with the story. We'll get into um, the scripture of it. But I did just want to remind you, it is a Q&A series. So if you'd like to um, text in questions or comments, awakenQ&A at gmail.com. And uh, so just real quick on this Jesus clearing the temple idea, I'll, I'll share a, a quick outline of it. What's really cool about it is the, um, this audacious act is actually recorded in all four gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's weird in John, John actually puts the act at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it happening at the very end of his ministry. And so it is one of those things like, well, why did John do that? Was there two acts of clearing the temple? And it kind of has puzzled scholars. And it should puzzle us. We should wonder, why does John tell us that it happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the other gospel writers say it happened at the very end. So most scholars for a while have thought that it actually was just one act, and John was choosing, but now kind of the consensus is, hey, there's actually two acts, and the reason why is every gospel writer is arranging their content topically because they're trying to prove a point. And we, that just, we don't like that, Right? Our data-driven society says that content has to be arranged chronolo chronologically, that content has to be arranged orderly, but nobody wrote like that in the ancient world. No one writing history wrote like that. You wrote because you needed to prove a point. 
every gospel is written so that it proves a point. So let's figure out what this audacious act is all about. And I would love to, to, to share with us that I think most of us have really no idea. Most of us have no idea. It's taken me quite a bit of study to arrive to a point where I, where I can feel like biblically, I think this is the reason why. And so just to refresh some of your memories, if you've never heard the story, I'll paraphrase it, and then we'll get to the scripture of it. Jesus is, is, goes into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry happens. He's acclaimed as the blessed one, the one who's going to ride in and save people. And he gets to the temple, and it's full of people buying and selling. It's like a marketplace. It's like a big mall. And Jesus just drives them out. He kicks them all out. He gets angry. He fashions a whip, and he gets the animals out. He overturns the table. Like, it's kind of like that WWE, like Jesus is flipping tables, and everybody's like, yeah. Like, Jesus, UFC fighter, flipping tables. And this is the story. And so we think all sorts of weird things about this. Let me just share a few that I have heard over the years. some assumptions about this story. One, Jesus is angry. And so we can be angry too about the things of God. Jesus was angry that people were, were not giving glory to God or that people were doing things they shouldn't have been doing in the temple. And so he got angry. And you know what? We have the right to be angry about the same things. I, I don't think that's actually really good biblical truth. <laughs> that we have the right to be angry, and God alone has the right to be angry. In James, it says that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So the next assumption, Jesus was this religious rebel. He was an anti-establishmentarian. It's a big word for basically like Jesus didn't like organized religion. Right, you ever hear friends like that? Well, Jesus, like, he, he messed up things in the temple, and I don't need to go to church. I just need to have a relationship with God. You know, Jesus wasn't all about that church and temple stuff. He disrupted it. It's like, I, I don't think that's what Jesus was doing either. The third thing, well, obviously there was money and financial transactions going on in these temple courts, and Jesus just didn't like money and the church to mix he was an anti-capitalist, so he just, he just had to get all that stuff out of the church. And this is why churches shouldn't have bookstores. This is why churches shouldn't let people give online. Like, none of that should happen. The church just needs to remove itself from money. That's what Jesus was about. I don't think that's a great argument either. And the last thing, right, Jesus was saving the animals. Right? Jesus was all about PETA. He founded it. He started it. He was done with sacrifices. God didn't like sacrifices. And so Jesus was saving all the animals. There's actually a really cool, like, kids video that uh, my wife and I watch with our kids. <laughs> I think it's called, like, The Star or something. And it's, anyways, it was funny. I was watching this. I was like, man, Jesus just saved all these animals. Like, it was really cool. Like, this little pure, unblemished lamb got to go free because Jesus, you know, threw all the cages away and, you know, flipped all the tables. And so all the doves and animals run free. I don't think Jesus was just about saving the animals. And so let's turn to our text this morning. So it's in Matthew 
chapter 21. Matthew 21. If you do want to um, study later the other accounts and the other gospels, um, you see it happen in Mark 11, you see it happen in Luke 19, um, and then you see the first time that Jesus cleansed the temple in John 2. But Matthew 21, and we're going to read verses 12 and 13. Starting in verse 12. Jesus went into the temple complex and drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. So I thought what would be really helpful is if we kind of had a picture, a recreation of what's going on. So if you guys could turn your eyes up to the screen real quick. So this is Herod's temple. Um, arguably, they say it took some 60-odd years to finish fully. Uh, and, and this is what we're talking about. So this would be the temple, that, that big, large, box-like structure. That's the temple. The gate right in front of that is kind of where you would go if you were a male or you were a priest. You're able to go in there. If you're a woman, you're not allowed to go into that gate. The larger gate down there at the bottom, if you're a woman, that's where you were allowed to go in. They had storerooms to the size. They even had a storeroom for essential oils. So ladies, just saying, there's a storeroom for essential oils in the temple. Um, and then all that region around there, that low retaining wall all around there, that's where you could come if you were a Gentile. If you were a God-fearer, but you weren't Jewish, but you wanted to worship God, also, that's where you were if you came and you were unclean, if you were lame, infirm, blind. If there's some kind of physical deformity, that is where you would go. Uh, if you were a woman on her cycle, that was where you would go. You weren't allowed to go into the temple courts proper. Um, on the sides around there, on that far right side, that's called the Antonia Fortress, that's where um, Herod and the Roman cohort, kind of the garrison for Jerusalem stayed, looking over that area. So if anything was going to happen, they could just rush shoulders in there. That other side is kind of the portico. It's like Solomon's colonnade. Actually, we kind of hear that more and more, that that's where a lot of people would gather to hear rabbis teach. That's where the early church gathered to worship. One of the reasons why is because you can see there's like on that far side, there's like two little square holes. You're like, what are those? Well, they're just stairs. <laughs> It's the Temple Mount. And so you, the very act of coming to the temple and worship involves you climbing through stairs, climbing up to worship God. And so when Jesus climbs up, he climbs up into this area and it's full. It's full, not of people worshiping God, but it's full of bankers and moneylenders and money changers it's full of merchants and animals. It's full of vendors selling food, everything that you would need because, see, the time is Passover, and Passover is when the city of Jerusalem would triple in size. Some people guess that half a million people or more would gather. All of them would have to come to the temple and offer sacrifice and pay temple tax. So Jews from all over the Mediterranean would come. 
even some Greeks, people who weren't Jews but would want to need to do that and come in. And they all had coinage. They all had currency from all over. And typically, all that things would be outside of the temple complex. But you see, year after year, it just got easier and easier to kind of move it up for convenience sake, right? We do a lot of things for convenience. It got easier and easier to just move it closer and closer to where you actually had to sacrifice and where you actually had to make the transaction. And so this whole area, and again, this area, we're like, oh, I wonder how big that is. This temple area itself is three football fields. So you can start to imagine how big this complex is. And all of it's full and noisy and crowded and smelly. And Jesus walks in here and he says, this cannot be. And so he drives them out. Some people say he fashioned a whip. He was a craftsman. So he took some time. You see, the night before he'd went into the city, he looked over everything and he realized what he needed to do. Jesus just didn't go in there angry, flipping tables in a rage. This audacious act happened for a reason, and he sees everything that's going on. He fashions this whip so he can drive out animals. And then he gets to it, and he does so. And, and I'm thinking, like, well, why didn't they just arrest him? Well, he also had his disciples, kind of his gang there. He also had the whole people had come to hear him teach, to hear what he was going to say. Some of those powerful teachings and parables that we have from Jesus are in the three to four days leading up to his arrest. He's teaching those in the temple, but he's teaching them minus all the noise of money changing and animals because he'd driven them out. And I just can't help but think, you know, again, why wasn't he arrested um, again, he was, he, people came, he was a prophet, he was healing people. But also I think if you're a money changer, if you're in business and someone's going to mess with your wares, the easiest thing you do is you just take it back to where they were before. So I think this is what, hap- this is what happens. And obviously the religious establishment does not like it. Obviously there's going to be a confrontation We're not there yet, but perhaps this is one of those things that Jesus does. He drives everybody out, preparing for this religious showdown between the leaders and himself. I think that's a really good explanation, but I don't think it quite gets the heart of this audacious act that Jesus has done. Again, Jesus does not nicely ask people to leave. He kicks them out. He drives them out. So what is the true purpose? We shared earlier that people from all over were coming, Jews from all over, but even Greeks, God-fearers, people who'd heard about the one true God, they're coming. And you know what is sad? And you know what I think breaks the heart of Jesus? Is that the temple, this is the only temple in all of the world that there's not a statue in. That there's not some kind of gold image, some kind of bronze craftsmanship 
some kind of carved wooden thing, gilded and dipped in precious metal and put up and told for people to worship this. It's the only temple that doesn't have some kind of man-made calf in it. In fact, there's no image in there. It's the only place for the nations in the world to come and worship the one true God. And Jesus comes in and he realizes that the nations and the world cannot worship the one true God because of all the noise and clutter and junk that his people, that the Jews have put in there to make their lives easier. And it breaks his heart and he drives it all out. John 12, 20 through 21 Let's us see this. Because right before Jesus goes, this is what happens. And this is what's so cool. When you, when you begin to study the Bible, maybe take some times and you read, you read an account or a story or a parable in one gospel, it's really helpful when you go to the other gospel and try to read the same things. You see, the account's always a little different. There's always something that's added or, or not there because it's written from a different perspective. Everything's not the same. When everything's the same, we call that propaganda. But this is God's word. And there's going to be differences in viewpoints, differences that people have picked up, different truths that he wants us to have. And so John 12, verses 20 and 21. Now. Some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus gave them some answers, but here's the truth. They went, and they're saying, we want to see Jesus. He's going to be teaching in the temple courts. We cannot get in there. We cannot hear what he's going to say. What informs Jesus' audacious acts is clearing the noise and clutter from his people's lives so that the lost can come and hear the truth of God. This is what's going on. And I think sometimes we have used it to justify our anger. We've used it to say down with the establishment and the church. Jesus is hardest for the lost. What's cool about this is this also fulfills prophecy. Sometimes we look at the New Testament and we're like, you know what? The New Testament, the New Testament is going to explain everything in the Old Testament. Whew. But that's, it's funny because that's not what Jesus' disciples thought. That's not what early teachers thought. They actually looked to the Old Testament to explain the New Testament. The stories and the things and the acts that God were doing, they looked to the Old Testament and said, where, where can we find what God is doing in the Old Testament? The Old Testament. Before you pick up a commentary by a smart dude about the New Testament, I would encourage you guys to study the Old Testament first. It explains. And Jesus is going to explain what he's doing to the crowds, 
to the, his disciples, to the religious establishment at the time. He is going to explain what he's doing using the Old Testament. Isn't that fascinating? If there's a reason why we should study the Old Testament, it's because Jesus explains his provocative words, his identity, and his audacious acts through the Old Testament. But there's some who don't want us to do that. In fact, very recently, a megachurch pastor, Andy Stanley, has said that we should probably get rid of the Old Testament. No, we shouldn't. The Old Testament is an ethic that informs our lives, and it's God's word that reveals Jesus Christ. Let's not commit heresy, and let's not commit disbelief in understanding Scripture. So what does Jesus say? In Isaiah 56, 3 through 7, this is just beautiful, and I wish I was preaching a whole sermon on this. But this is what Jesus says. This is why Jesus is clearing out the temple. So please turn with me. Pull it up in your Bible app. Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 7. We're going to start right away. The first words, no foreigner. No foreigner. So no one from the nations, no foreigner, who is converted to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. The eunuch should not say, I'm not a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, For the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And the foreigners who convert to the Lord minister to him, love the Lord's names, and are his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold firmly to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Jesus, again, says he's doing this because his house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The last half of verse 7, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, and my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the Lord's declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel, and I will gather to them still others besides those who are already gathered. God's people had prevented the nations from offering burnt offerings, from keeping the covenant on the Sabbath, from coming in and worshiping God. And in God's word, it says that they will always have a place, that they will be able to keep covenant. And Jesus comes into the city and he comes into the temple and he comes into the house that should be a house of prayer for all nations There's a bunch of noise and clutter and convenience and junk. And he gets rid of it. He is fulfilling scripture. Jesus cares about the truth of scripture more than he cares about the convenience of his own people. Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11. Flip over there. Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11. says this, do not steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known. Then do you come to this house and stand in this house, call by my name and insist we are safe? 
As a result, you are free to continue doing all these detestable acts. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. Jeremiah was talking about what the people of God were doing in Judah 500 years before. But he's also prophetically speaking to what Jesus is going to come in. Jesus is going to come in and he's going to look at his people and they're worshiping his name and the nations and the Gentiles and the Greeks don't have access to his house. And he calls them a den of robbers. Den, when we look at it um, in the Greek, it can just mean like a cave or a grotto. And if you think if you're a robber, a robber is someone who, in that time, they would hide in plain sight. It means they would mix around with the people. They know things, but then at night or in the hill country, they would rob and attack people. So you could be a very upstanding person, but be a robber. And you'd rob and attack people, and then you'd take your treasure, and you'd hide it in a grotto, in a cave, somewhere where it's not seen very easily. And Jesus is saying, you are hiding the treasure of God in this temple and not allowing people to see it. You are robbing the nations of the glory of God. Wow. Again, Jesus clears this area. For the next three or four days, he's going to teach, he's going to heal, He's going to prophetically confront the leaders. All of the action that goes down between the leaders, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the scribes towards the end of Jesus' life happened in these temple courts. And the nations can come in and hear it. And they're listening to it. He confronts Israel with the simple fact that he is the true temple. He is the Messiah. He is the sent one of God. And you know what? There are no more money changers. There's no more animal sacrifices because the reality is Jesus is the sacrifice and the economic transaction that allows us to go free, free from our sins. He is the temple, and it's his blood that will be spilled. And we are invited to see this without the noise and the clutter. So uh, this is a Q&A series. Um, so you have questions, thoughts, something that you want to share, um, something you don't understand. Um, if you just want to text that in, awakenqna at gmail.com. Um, I'd love to, to kind of give you the, the main point of this once more and then um, make a, a quick connection to our lives. Yes, it's great. We know this now. Man, this is the main point. Awesome. What do we do with this information? Again, Jesus is removing the idols, blocking the worship of the one true God. He was removing the noise and clutter of his people so that the nations could come in. And worship. 
Jesus was making room for people to hear and see the gospel. And I think, again, we need to hear that because Jesus is doing the same in our life. But I think one of the things that we've done, just like the people have done, and I don't know how it happens. It's happened in my life. I'll share in a moment how it's happened. But sadly, we allow the noise and the clutter to creep into our lives. We've done the same thing. We've set up idols around the temple. Idols around our own bodies. Things of convenience and comfort and complacency that are preventing us, possibly, from worshiping but maybe even worse, preventing the lost, preventing the nations from seeing how we are different because we worship the one true God. We are filling up our courts, our lives with noise and clutter. And so how do we do that? Um, I'll share just four ways. They might be a little different, you might not have thought about them. I think these are four that I've struggled with personally the last couple of years. The first is this. Um, we are a sleepless nation and a sleepless people. We don't like bedtime. <laughs> I mean, I got like three kids, but my five and three-year-olds, they don't like bedtime. <laughs> they fight against it. We do the same thing, right? We stay up late watching things. We stay up late reading things. And I'm not, again, I'm not a medical doctor, but I do know that sleeplessness and not getting good sleep, it can be a gateway to all sorts of other things. Caffeine, substance addiction, exhaustion, just a general busyness. You know, it's, it can be a gateway to, it can be a gateway to a character that's lousy. You're angry and you snap at people and you're grumpy. It's all because you got four and a half hours of sleep last night when your body needs six, seven, eight hours of sleep. Our sleep schedules are meant to glorify God. And when they don't, I think we can all confess that it's a whole lot easier for us to sin. The other thing is unhealthy living. This is for me... Um, about two years ago, um, I weighed about 275 pounds. I was just feeling slower. I mean, I'm getting older. <laughs> feeling slower, I wasn't eating right, and I felt like my wife was always nagging me about this. And I was always getting mad at her. And then for Father's Day, she gave me a coupon for two months working out at a gym. How's that for a Father's Day present? <laughs> You know, I was expecting like a day off, like, you know, being able to have some fun. And she's like, here, here's a coupon for Jim. Happy Father's Day. She was right. That my eating and just being able to eat whatever I wanted to since college is kind of coming to a close. And I think for us, Sometimes what we eat and what we consume can be an idol that actually is going to cause us to struggle with health problems, to be less active. And the nations, opportunities for us to go on mission trips, opportunities for us to do things with our health can be impeded and the nations won't be able to hear, all because we've chosen out of comfort and convenience to eat whatever we want. 
financial dystopia. I think this is another thing as well. So oftentimes, God is robbed of his glory. The church is robbed of her ability to meet so many needs because we live on credit. And I think God doesn't want us to live in a financial dystopia. He wants us to know our budgets, to not conjecture how much we're going to make, but to really be diligent in this area so that we can bring glory to him, but even more importantly, so we can honor the commitments that we have. And then the big E, right? How much time is screen time or me time? You know, Jesus had me time in the Bible. That's what he called it, except for he just would go get away from people and be with his father. He'd retreat into the wilderness. He'd retreat away from people and he'd be with his father. We have me time too, but we don't spend it with our father. We spend it oftentimes with screens. We spend oftentimes just soaking in the next season or the next that. I want to be very careful. This isn't like no one's trying to to twist your arm or to, to make you feel bad. But I think we are trying to say Jesus wants to drive out things that prevent the nations from hearing the gospel. If we're addicted to seasons of shows or screen time, it means that our lives are not bringing glory to God. We might be wondering how we can serve Jesus and we're not even studying the Bible or sharing our faith with people or even having people over, just being relational with people because we're so saturated with our screen time. Again, my purpose here is not to make anybody feel bad, not to twist any hearts, but to challenge you guys to say, if Jesus clears out the temple, maybe in our lives, maybe after hearing this, maybe there's some things that he wants to clear out in your life for the purpose of the nations coming and hearing the gospel from your lives. Our lives should resound with the gospel. So let's tackle a few questions and then we'll wrap up this morning. Cool, man, a lot of questions. Yeah, uh, so a great one about the Andy Stanley comment. He was referencing the law in light of grace. Um, circumcision tells age. He didn't suggest we don't need the Old Testament anymore. So I think that's good. So I, I went back and, like, listened to him a couple times. It doesn't seem like he's just talking about that. In fact, it seems like the complicated things is he says, let's just not worry about explaining them. And so what he's kind of doing is going down this um, path called the, it's the Marcionite heresy. It's a guy in the early first century, second century said, hey, the Old Testament, like we don't really need that. We just need the New Testament. And so I, I would just, again, we want to be very clear about who we listen to and who we follow and who we learn from. I think it's, it's very challenging to have someone say that kind of we, the Old Testament, we just need to kind of take it down a few notches. The reality is it's the, the unveiled, revealed word of God. Why are the people in the temple courts called thieves? Yeah, right, so going back to the den of robbers. Again, to me, is, is what we shared is that they are actually hiding the treasure of the worship of the one true God. 
They are thieves, and they've allowed the temple courts, the courts of the Gentiles, where Gentiles should be able to come in and worship, they've allowed that to be the place where they do their sacrifices, their economic transactions. And so Jesus calls them robbers and thieves. You're hiding the treasure of the worship of the one true God with the midst of all this clutter and noise. Um, again, that's from Jeremiah. Um, and I think what's cool, if you go back to read Jeremiah, um, and it really, you go back, use the entire purpose of the temple, the entire purpose of the temple, the reason why God had Solomon build the temple was so that the nations should come and worship. Bathsheba, queen of the south. Many people argue queen of all of Africa came and got to worship God at Solomon's temple. It was meant for the nations to come and learn who the one true God was. Yeah, if there were so many people there, how did Jesus drive them out? I don't think it was like a five-minute, like, I'm going to flip one table. I, I think this was some hot, sweaty, challenging, painstaking work. In our lives, if we've got idols in our lives, you know what? It's going to be hot, sweaty, challenging, painstaking life to drive them out, to get on a sleep schedule, to sit down with your budget, to start going to the gym. Those are things that are going to take a while. And it took Jesus a while to clear out several football-sized fields of money changing. So I think this was real hard work that Jesus did. It wasn't something that happened like that. That's a great question Man, you guys sent a lot of questions. Okay, cool. This is a great question. How do you explain Jesus fixing the temple problems with selling and trading in the temple, but not fixing the problems with sexism and discrimination against women going on in the church at that time? Not allowing women to enter the main gate and considering them dirty while on their cycle. What makes these two issues separate? Yeah, so I think... What's really cool is, is Jesus does address that by making himself the temple. And so as he invites people to teach, he's not in, in listen to him over the course of the next couple of days. Jesus isn't teaching inside those gates. He's actually teaching kind of in that court of the Gentile where the Solomon's colonnade was. So another cool thing is that the court of the women that was there and this whole idea of even like when women were on their cycle not being allowed in that that doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from Judaism and rabbinical Judaism over the course of 500 years before Christ. So I think that's what's really interesting is we see this picture of the temple and we realize that some of the very things that those people are doing aren't called for in the Bible. And that should challenge us, right? And I think, how does Jesus address those? Well, again, Jesus is the temple. And what does he say in some other passages? It's cool. He says, you will destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. So this discrimination, this sexism, this uncleanness, it's destroyed. And what's raised up in its place 
is Jesus Christ, who does not discriminate against anyone. There's some more questions. I'll tackle them through email. Um, thanks, guys, for all those questions. And I, I pray that um, we would um, be all the more serious about um, getting rid of anything in our lives that prevent the nations from coming to worship. May we begin to clear out the courts of our lives so that Jesus can have center stage. Father, we thank you for this uh, morning, God. We thank you that uh, you have shown us what to do through hard, sweaty labor of clearing out the courts. And Lord, I pray that we would be able um, to worship you. And Lord, I pray that the people around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, ones we love, God, Lord, our lives would be free of of clutter that maybe robs you of glory. Would we not hide the treasure of the gospel away? Lord, I pray this in your name. Amen.